Today is September the 2nd, 2010. I have a new calendar on here. We need to make it count. So let's prepare ourselves in our usual way. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time you've given us to assemble ourselves together to prepare for what's going to happen for the rest of this night, for tomorrow, for the week, the next week, the month, however much time you give us here on planet Earth, and prepare for what is next on your agenda so that we can be good soldiers for Christ and that we can glorify you. We can't do that apart from knowing your word. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, There's one other thing I needed to bring up real quick. Visuals. Okay, we're going to first take a look at uh, the broad view. We're going to get back, look at the forest, the whole, the whole schmear. And we're looking at dispensations. Dispensations means that God has eventually, essentially divided up history, human history, into different segments. And he interacts with man in different ways during each dispensation. And the first, as you see up here, is the age of the Gentiles. That was approximately 6,000 years ago that it started, and it has gone on for, it went on for about 2,000 years, plus or minus. That's in the green. That's the age of the patriarchs. Then you have the age of the Jews, which started about 4,000 years ago. Well, it lasted uh, it, about 2,000 years, and you're going to have, um, after that, the church age. This began with, the, uh, with Moses when God gave the Israelites the law. He started interacting with man in a different way, a, a, a way that he hadn't before. And so that is a dispensation of its own. You'll notice that is in blue. Then you have the cross. Notice that the cross is still in the age of the Jews. All the Gospels, all the four Gospels, took place during the age of the Jews. And then after Jesus Christ was died on the cross, he was buried, and he was resurrected uh, three days, three nights later. And then 50 days after that, we have another dispensation here in the red, which is the age in which we are in. Now, You'll also notice that over here we have another dispensation coming, which is called the tribulation, and it is in blue also. The reason that it is in blue is because it's a continuation of what uh, happened before. God informed 
Daniel through the angel Gabriel that there was going to be another 490 years. There was a certain amount of time that was going to be yet given to the Jews. And this interrupted that time frame when the church started on the day of Pentecost. Pente means five or 50 in uh, Greek. So you have Pentecost. It was 50 days after Christ's resurrection and everything changed. We are not under the Mosaic law. We are in Christ. There's no other people in any dispensation that is in Christ. We are the royal family. We have opportunities and privileges that others don't have. And it's not credited to us. We don't earn it or deserve it. It's just in God's overall plan. This is what's on our agenda. And so we don't know how long we are going to continue, but we do know that our dispensation, the time frame that we are in, is going to end when Jesus Christ returns to get us. And we just studied that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So what takes place at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 18 in that area right here, is what is known as the rapture. Jesus Christ is going to return from heaven and our bodies are going to if we are if if we die before he returns, our bodies are going to be resurrected with a body that is incorruptible. It won't be subject to pain. It won't be subject to uh, misery. It won't be subject to death. That's going to happen here, right here. Now, one thing that we're going to notice as we go through First Thessalonians, and we're in First Thessalonians chapter five right now is that there, there's a very important distinction between the church and those who are going to be in the tribulation. Several times in the Bible it says that this last period, seven years are left for Israel, that God is going to deal with them in a certain way. It's for Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not for the church. It is for stiff-necked, Christ-rejecting unbelievers and they will go through this period of time this seven years which is called the the worst time there ever was or ever will be it is for unbelievers it is for israel it is not for the church and in first thessalonians chapter four paul is describing in detail more than any other place in the bible you get more details in first thessalonians chapter four about what we call the rapture christ return to get us than any other place and it ends with the phrase, comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is going to come back personally and take us back home. Home for us is heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We're just sojourning on this earth. We're just here a short time and it is in enemy territory. So he's going to take us out of this veil of tears and he's going to take us to what was called the judgment seat of Christ. I don't want to go into this all that uh, deep, but suffice it to say that all of our lives are going to be evaluated personally by Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven or not. That's set. That's guaranteed. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to determine if you're going to get rewards, decorations, privileges, and opportunities that are going to last for all eternity or not. Some will be decorated. 
others will be ashamed. They will experience shame there because they wasted all the time and all the grace, all the blessings and all the benefits that God gave them. They completely threw it away and they will be peons in heaven for all eternity because of the decisions they make here on earth. But you don't have to dread that. You don't have to dread the judgment seat of Christ because we have more time. I don't know how much more time we have, but we are given time. And you can't glorify God. You will not be decorated at the judgment seat of Christ. You will be a peon if you're a spiritual ignoramus. And unfortunately, that's the category most believers today fall into. They know nothing of dispensations. They don't know when they go into the Bible, when they're reading something. They, if you don't know dispensations, you don't know what God is, is uh, telling you or what he desires for you to do at any given time. But why do we not bring goats in here and cut their throat? There was a time that that was appropriate. In fact, it was mandated. It was commanded. It's part of the Mosaic Law. But we're not under the Mosaic Law. We're not in that dispensation. So we have a different economy, a spiritual economy. So what I'm saying is it's very important, and Paul is making a a very clear distinction as to when this is going to happen, the rapture, when Jesus Christ returns. And it's it's called the Blessed Hope. Now, when you get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is where we are, we're going to continue tonight in verse 8. But when you get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he introduces something that most people aren't aware of what it is, and that is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord begins not not the day of the rapture, because when we are raptured, when we are taken into into, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, we're taken with Christ. Where Christ is, there also we will be. The, the, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, does not begin right exactly at that point. We don't know how much time is going to pass before this last seven years of the, tribula- of the Jewish age begins, which we call the tribulation. It could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year, or maybe even more than a year. The thing that starts the clock ticking here for the last seven years of the tribulation is going to be when the Antichrist, who was already going to be revealed by that time, makes a contract or a covenant, a treaty with Israel. Now, what does that mean? Before that's going to happen, Antichrist has got to be revealed and there has to be Israel, right? Now, Israel is already a nation, and for nearly 2,000 years they weren't a nation. But it's heavily prophesied in the Bible that Israel is going to be regathered, and they're regathered in unbelief. They have to be regathered in unbelief for them to make a treaty with the Antichrist. So that is what is going to start the clock ticking. And what Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians 5 is explaining a bit about the day of the Lord and how horrible it's going to be. The purpose of the day of the Lord is twofold. First of all, it is to punish unbelievers and Satan as well as his his demons who are going to uh, try to bring in a false millennium. And uh, we're going to have Christ coming back and he is going to wrestle away 
from the usurper who is over earth today, who is the, the one, the ruler of the earth today, is Satan. And Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to take the title deed of planet earth, which is the, the seal, excuse me, the uh, scroll. Uh, we find this in Revelation chapter 5. That's the legal right for Jesus Christ to come back and take over possession of the earth. He has that legal right by what he did on the cross. And every time he breaks a seal, more judgment is going to be poured out on planet earth. And the purpose is to take control back from planet earth. Do you think that Satan, after all this time, and his demon armies and so forth, when Christ comes back and he says, here's the title deed, this shows I have legal authority to take over the earth. Do you think they're just going to, oh, okay, well, we'll it's all yours. No. No dictator, no despot, no uh, person who has uh, illegitimately taken over authority is going to give it up without a struggle. That's one reason that the earth is going to go through the worst time that it ever has here in this seven-year period. But another reason is because still... The Jewish people as a whole have rejected Jesus Christ. They do not think that he is their Messiah. They are still waiting for the Messiah. They rejected their Messiah, the true Messiah, and they are going to accept the false Messiah, which is the Antichrist. And it's going to take this level of suffering and misery and horror for them to finally recognize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. They're going to be humbled to the point, and this is what it's going to take, because they are stiff-necked. And they're not just coming down on the Jews. There's going to be Gentiles there as well that are unbelieving and stiff-necked. But what we have in 1 Thessalonians 5 is a description, or at least he's explaining about a little bit about the day of the Lord. Now, here's something that's new to this, to this screen here that I didn't have before. From the beginning here of the day of the Lord that starts with the Antichrist making a treaty with Israel, from that point all the way to the end of the seven years, the second advent, Jesus Christ is going to return and crush all rebellion. That's when the baptism of fire, this is when every unbeliever on earth will be killed. They'll be tossed into the... Uh, compartment of hell called torments, and then his millennial rule will begin here with nothing but believers. And it will last a thousand years. And this whole period of time is called the day of the Lord. The first portion of the day of the Lord is known as darkness, as night, as something that you would not want to be a part of, and you won't be because we're believers, but it's going to be a time of suffering and something that people would dread. This is the first part, seven years. Now, the last thousand years is also the day of the Lord, but it is the light side. It is the dime of blessing, not cursing. So you have in the term, the day of the Lord, both a time frame that is judgment, that is dark, and you have a, a thousand years after that that is also part of the day of the Lord, that is going to be blessing and light. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians, 
that you are sons of light. You are of the day. You're not of darkness. And what he's telling them is that they're not going to have any part of this tribulation, which is for the Jews. And by the time you get to, if I just press on, we'll go through the scriptures and we're going to see by the time he tells them what he's eventually getting to the point there is they're going to have comfort in knowing that they have no part of that. That's where we're going. And I just thought I'd give you an overview to begin with for you to see. that. By the way, the day of the Lord is not only going to go to the end of the millennium, it's going to encompass the great white throne, even to the point to where I don't have it here, but there's going to be a new heaven and new earth that God is going to create after human history is over with at the great white throne, and that ends the day of the Lord. We get that in Second Peter. So do, do I have any questions before I press on? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I say it does. Actually, in Second Peter, when it's referring to the day of the Lord, after the, the great white throne judgment, God is going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. And actually, that ends the day of the Lord. Yeah. Yes. Mike, after we're raptured out and we in the air, mm-hmm. and the darkness, we're going yeah, we to... Right. We will have no part of it. And then, no. the believer, I think the question may come up, where is those believers during the millennial time? Can you that? What believers? The believers that are raptured out when Christ sets up the millennium. Uh-huh. Okay, so you're talking about at the millennium right here? Yeah, at the beginning Okay, if you're talking about church age believers, okay, church age believers are going to uh, go to the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to be with Christ in heaven during the seven year period. It, the, the the people here referenced in Revelation and in Daniel, all the other scriptures, reference them as Israel, as Gentiles, as earth dwellers, but no Christians. So we're going to be in heaven the whole time this is going on. At the end of this time, at the second advent, we will come back with Jesus Christ. This is in Revelation chapter uh, 19. And not only will we be coming back with Christ in resurrection bodies, the Old Testament believers, see, at this point, right, uh, I don't know where to show it exactly, uh, in, uh, in, after, after Christ's death, uh, well, even the Gospels are before, given account, once the, the New Testament has begun, uh, up, in, up until all this time, the uh, age of the Jews, Anybody that dies during this period of time, their body goes into the ground and their uh, soul and spirit of believers goes up to be with, with, with uh, Christ in heaven. When a believer dies prior to the rapture, same thing. His, his body goes into the ground and his soul and spirit goes to be with Christ in heaven. Now, here's the difference, though. At the... Rapture, when Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to receive a resurrection body, one that was not subject to death again. We'll receive our resurrection body and go back up into heaven 
There will still be Old Testament believers there, their soul and spirit, probably in the interim body of some form. But they're not going to have their resurrection bodies yet. They do not get their resurrection bodies until after the end of their dispensation. See, we get our, our resurrection body at the end of our dispensation. They get their resurrection body at the end of their dispensation, which is going to be at the second advent at the end of the tribulation. And they're going to come and, and get their resurrection body. We are also coming. Their soul and spirit is in heaven. So what has to happen? At the second advent, their soul and spirit has to come and get their resurrection body here at the second advent. We're going to be coming with Christ, but we're not going to be getting a resurrection body. We already have one. You understand that? So at the end, they're going to get their resurrection body then. Now, what about believers here? What are going to happen to believers in the uh, tribulational period that are martyred, those that die during the tribulation period? What happens to them? Same thing that happened here and here. Their body goes into uh, the ground or grave, whatever, and their soul and spirit is going to go up and be in heaven. But when they're there, they're going to... Church-age believers already have their resurrection bodies. They also are going to get their resurrection bodies at the second advent, at the end of their dispensation, which is right there. They'll get their, their resurrection bodies. Now, what about the ones who don't die? What about the believers during the uh, tribulational period and they don't die? Are they going to get a resurrection body along here with all the other ones? No. They are the ones that go into the thousand years and populate planet Earth. They are going to be the ones who are the believers. They're going to start out a new dispensation where there won't be anything but believers. Because the baptism of fire, when Jesus Christ returns, everyone that is an unbeliever is off planet Earth. They're going to be killed. And these that are alive and endured to the end, they're going to go right into the thousand years uh, millennium. That's going to be some, those people are going to have a tale to tell. They're going to be in the worst part of history ever. The worst times there has ever been. They'll be able to tell, tell stories that will make the hair curl on a ball man. However, they're also going to see the best. They're going to see after the curse is lifted off of planet Earth. And Jesus Christ is ruling from the capital city of Jerusalem. And they're going to live through the whole deal. They're going to have some stories to tell. Yes, Doc. Well, they're they're going to be judged here. There are you mean with regards to uh, uh, rewards and decorations and so forth. Yeah, that happens here when they're when they are going to get their resurrection body. Uh, whatever uh, their rewards will be, that's when they, it will be decided. This, in this seven-year period, we've got 15 chapters of Revelation that gives specifics about that. There is so much going on, it boggles the mind. Uh, Clarence Larkin was a man that was great at making charts, and he was a draftsman, and he could put it all out. And if you started here at the beginning of the tribulation, and you just went these seven years. You didn't go into the thousand years there. If you put everything on a timeline that is going to be going on there, if you do it in detail, it would probably span the width of this church. 
I mean, there's so much going on. And some people have the attitude, well, I'm not going to be there, so who cares? Well, every jot and tittle in the Word of God is for our benefit. And even though we're not going to be there, it, it gives us not only hope, but it also gives us more of a clear picture of what our God is like. Our God is loving, merciful. He is full of grace, unlimited. But He's also not a God to be trifled with either. And He has uh, righteous indignation. He has justice that will surely fall. And when it does, it's been building up all this time. And when, when He starts breaking those seals and judgment starts to fall on planet Earth, by the time you get to that sixth seal, you're going to have people saying that they're going to run into the caves and say, fall on us and kill us, keep us from the wrath of the Lamb and, and from the, His Father. And it's going to be unbelievably horrible. And that's the early stages. Uh, the beginning of birth pangs start here. This is the, it, remember we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5 that it's going to come upon them suddenly, unexpectedly. They're not going to have a clue that it's coming. And it's like birth pains. When they hit, wham! I, of course, I'm not speaking from experience, but I assume, you know, you're just, you know, uh, sewing, cleaning, or listening to the radio, whatever you're doing, all of a sudden, bam, it hits you, and you think, uh-oh. Can you escape those? No. And the Bible says you're not going to escape this birth pains here either. The beginning of birth pains, by the time you get to the sixth seal, one-fourth of the world's population are gone. I mean, if we had time, and I'm not going to take time now, but if you did a study and you really looked into how horrible this time is going to be, you would think, how can anyone bear it? And the thing is, they can't bear it. In fact, the Bible says if the time was not cut short, no believer would survive it. Satan's time is short. He is desperate. He's trying to annihilate the Jews because if he can annihilate the Jews, that would mean that God cannot keep his promises to the Jews. Way back here, in the age of the Jews, God made four unconditional covenants to the Jews. He promised them four things. I won't go into the details right now because I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but let me tell you this. An unconditional covenant means that man doesn't have to do anything in order for God to fulfill this promise. God has bound Himself, His own Word, unconditionally that He is going to accomplish certain things for His people Israel. Those things have not happened yet. One of the things, uh, and all, by the way, all these covenants are made to the Jews. Now, if Satan, during this tribulational period, can annihilate the Jews, there's no more Jews left for God to fulfill His promise, then He can't fulfill the promise Satan has won the angelic conflict. That's one reason that we have anti-Semitism raising its ugly head again today. But it's going to reach its height, zenith, during the tribulational period. And then you know why. Now, this, I am barely touching the tip of the iceberg with what, the information I'm giving you here. But it's enough. I want you to get the picture of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The gist of it is, is we have hope. Because we're going to be raptured out of here. We give information here about how horrible it's going to be. But by the time we get to verse 9 and 10 
of 1 Thessalonians 5, it's given us hope. It's given us confidence. We're no part of that. So, take your Bibles, open them if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Is there any more questions before I press on? We're going to begin with verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. You can read in your Bible or you can look up here. But since we are of the day, this is what he's been saying over and over and over again. We are sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of darkness. We're not going to go through that period of darkness. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, we're going to take this apart. Some people tend to think this is boring and and lose their concentration during this part of exegesis. But just hang in there because it's important. First of all, we have the phrase having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Well, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I went down too far. Having, But since we are of the day, I've already covered that up higher. I'm not going to go back over it again right now. We'll just start with having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Having put on is the Greek word enduo, E-N-D-U-O. It's participle, eris middle. Eris is nondescript with regards to the uh, type of action. It's just saying that it happened. Middle voice means that the, the subject participates in the action of the verb. So, it is the subject would be believers are the ones that have to put on the breastplate. To put on as a garment, this is what it means, to cause to get into a garment, to clothe, to dress. That's what enduo means. The mental voice indicates that the subject of the verb is benefited by its own action. Now, the word breastplate is thorax, T-H-O-R-A-X. It's a noun, accusative, singular, uh, masculine. This came from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, by the way. First definition is a usually metal plate worn as a defensive armor for the breast. See uh, armor illustration. Then the second one is a vestment worn in ancient times by a Jewish high priest and set with 12 gems bearing the name of the tribes of Israel. Uh, We won't go into that right now, but that's interesting in itself. Uh, I won't even start there because... uh, Just remind me of it someday and I'll give you more information on it. Primarily, the breast denotes a breastplate or corset consisting of two parts protecting the body on both sides from the neck to the middle. It is used metaphorically of righteousness in Ephesians 6.14 and of faith and love in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Now, I have a... I have a picture of what the breastplate looked like for the Roman soldiers anyway. You can see that it covered quite a bit. covered the front, back, and sides. And this would protect your vital organs. Now, we're talking about what it looked like physically. The definition and the word used and the context in what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 5 
is not physical at all. It is a spiritual aspect. But you can see from the physical breastplate how important it is. Uh, when you went into battle, what part would you want to protect the most? Wouldn't it be this part right here? I mean, your arms, you can get shot in the arms, you can get wounded in the arms and carry on. Uh, same thing in the legs to a degree. Uh, you can get shot in the arm and continue with an arrow and continue. But if you get shot in the middle part here where your heart and your lungs and all the vital organs are, you're in trouble. So this shows, and by the way, we're going to see that both of these, uh, the, the armor that is given here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is of a defensive nature. Okay, back to our notes here. Okay, so we have <coughs> thorax. Here's another definition. Thorax is the part of the body of a man or other animals between the neck and the abdomen. The middle of the chief divisions of the body of an insect. When y'all were kids, did you have to go to school and you had to find a beetle or something and you had to put a pin through them and uh, label the different parts of him? I, I can remember the thorax. I remember the thorax and the antennas outside of that. And legs, had legs, some of them had wings. So here's a few of the definitions we see here, uh, or, or at least the places that we see this used again, this word uh, thorax. In Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is talking about the full armor. Paul is not talking about the full armor here, but he gives a couple of pieces of armor that are in the defensive nature. You have Ephesians 6.14. Stand firm, therefore, girded your loins, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So in this verse, we're talking about the breastplate of faith and love. These two words you're familiar with. Pistis is a noun, genitive singular feminine. A state of certainty with regards to belief, to have complete trust and confidence in something or someone. And then we have the word agape for love. Just about every Christian has heard that term, that word. And I just gave it the, the definition. It's a mental attitude of unconditional love. So this is the breastplate you have. See, here's the re reason Paul is going into this uh, symbolism is because he's saying, you are of the day. You're not of the night. You, you, essentially what he's saying is, you are royalty. You are the most high. And yet you're going to be attacked. And you need to defend yourself. And this is the, the symbolism he's giving here. Now this is, he says, and as a helmet. Now the word helmet is perikephalia. P-E-R-I-K-E-P-H-A-L-I-A. Uh, it's a noun, accusative, singular, feminine. And it's a compound word. Peri means around, and kafale means head. So it's, you put those two together, and it means a protection that surrounds the head. Of course, this is not a literal helmet here. It means the helmet of salvation, that is, uh, and it is called that in Ephesians 6.17 as well. The helmet is a pretty important part of armor, isn't it? 
And this is, says, as a helmet, what we see next is very interesting, the hope of salvation. Put on the helmet as a hope of salvation. We have hope here, which is Elpis, now accused of singular feminine, looking forward to something with confident expectation. So he was telling the Thessalonians, you have to have faith and you have to have love. That's the breastplate. But you also need to have as a helmet the hope of salvation. You got that so far? Confident expectation. Since we are Christians of the day, we should put on our spiritual armor, which consists of faith, love, and hope. Ever heard of the song, Faith, Hope, and Charity? That's the way to live successfully. How do I know the Bible? You never heard that one before? Charity is the old English word for love. So here we have it again, those three. So we have faith towards God and His Word, love towards God and man, and hope that would be confident. Now listen to this. In the promises of God. We are in spiritual warfare, and it is the spiritual armor that provides protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because that is what assails us every single day. And you have to put your armor on every day. If you don't, you're going to be vulnerable. Especially, I'm zeroing in as the helmet, the hope of salvation. It's important to have this hope. This hope of salvation, by the way, is this talking about the hope of going to heaven? <laughs> right. <laughs> Y'all are so so easy uh, to you got it. Uh, this the whole context here is has to do with the day of the Lord. He says, "You are a day. You're not of dark. You're not of night. You're not. You're light. You're not darkness." And one of the things that is important for you to have is the hope, the confident expectation of salvation. And this is not talking about salvation, eternal security. It's talking about the word means delivered, and it means delivered from the day of the Lord. That is your helmet. Verse 9, verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Ho, ho, whoo! Is this a power, powerhouse here? We'll take it a step at a time. For God has not destined. The word destined is tithemi. T-I-T-H-E-M-I. It's a verb and it's the heiress middle indicative. And it means to bring to a specific place, to establish, to make, or to place, or to set. So it's saying God has not set us. He hasn't destined us. He hasn't specified us or made us or placed us for something. And then you notice he's using the word us here, which is hemas. That would be H-E-M-A-S. This is a personal pronoun, first-person plural accusative, and refers to church-age believers. Who else does it refer to? Paul. He said us. He didn't say y'all. 
I don't think he ever said y'all. But he's not, he's not saying y'all. He's saying us, including himself in it. Now, look at this. In addition to the breastplate, Paul also exhorts the Thessalonians to put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. This phrase might well be rendered as a helmet, as a helmet, the expectation of deliverance or rescue. See, salvation, people think about heaven. But the word there is soteria, and it also means delivered or rescued. And it's not talking about deliverance from heaven. Nowhere in this whole thing is Paul talking about deliverance with regards to being not condemned for eternity and going to heaven. He's talking about something altogether different. He introduces it in chapter 5, verse 2, when he's talking about the day of the Lord. Remember, he said, I don't have to tell you about the times and epochs. And the day of the Lord will come on you like a thief in the night, and you will not expect it. This is the, the, what he's talking about. So when he's talking about deliverance, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about deliverance from the day of the Lord. Now, continuing this quote, in contrasting his audience with the plight of the world, Paul has, that plight of the world, by the way, would be unbelievers. Paul has already said that unregenerate, the unregenerate shall not escape. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. As sons of light, the Thessalonians did not share the nature of those around them. That's what he's doing. We already went through that. Sons of light, sons of night, sons of light, sons of darkness. Now, this, I'm continuing here. And this is, by the way, this is from a Schaefer Theological journal that was written by Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges is... Uh, Went to be with the Lord last year. If you ever, I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but he, he in my library is uh, one of the books that I think is fabulous is The Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges. And he also wrote another book called Absolutely Free. He, is, he understands grace. There's no doubt, about, no doubt about it. So he's the one that wrote this. And he says that... Um, Neither should they share, this would be believers, in the world's unwatchful stupor. But instead, they were to watch and be sober, having exhorted his audience to put on their spiritual armament. Paul picks up the familiar theme of assurance in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. This is the verse that we're looking at. Therefore, he reaffirms the declaration made in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. If you don't remember what that is, go there. He's connecting 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with 1 Thessalonians chapter 10. I mean, chapter 5, verse 10. Y'all got that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Somebody read it out loud for me. It's got a loud voice. Slow and loud. Thank you, Danny. Did you hear that? That rescues us from the wrath to come. That is connected with what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Not destined us for wrath, 
but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at wrath here for a moment. Wrath is the Greek word orge, or O-R-G-E. It's a noun accused of singular feminine, and it means anger, punishment, or judgment. God has not destined us for wrath. Sounds just like what he said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, doesn't it? The context has nothing to do with eternal condemnation. It is speaking of the wrath of the day of the Lord. Verse 2. It does not distinguish, listen to this, it does not distinguish whether wrath is from God or man or a combination of both. It's referring to what is commonly known as the tribulation. Now, the reason, why, why would I throw something like that in there? I always have reasons for putting things like that in there. The reason is because there are those that say, oh, no, we're going through at least half of the tribulational period. Because the first half of the tribulational period is just the wrath of man and Satan. God's wrath doesn't even come in. The day of the Lord doesn't even start until Satan takes over midpoint of the tribulation when he goes into the temple and the abomination of desolation takes place and he orders everybody to worship him. They say that's when the day of the Lord begins. That's when God's wrath starts being poured out. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is God's wrath or man's wrath. First of all, that's not so. And I'm not going to go into a long dissertation about that right now, but who is it that's up there breaking the seals, unleashing the judgment? Who is that? Jesus Christ is doing it. So it's nonsense that it's just the idea that it's the wrath of man or Satan. And the reason I'm bringing that out right now is because this verse says, He has not destined us for wrath, period. You don't see the wrath of God there, do you? It's just wrath, period. And so to try to make a case and say, oh, well, that's not God's wrath, so it doesn't count. It doesn't say God's wrath here, does it? It just says wrath. That's why I put it in there. It might not be pertinent to you, but it would be pertinent to somebody who is mixed up and thinks that we have to go through half of the tribulation before God's wrath starts being poured out. Prior to that, we're not, we're not uh, under God's wrath, but we still have to suffer the tribulation and i'm saying that ain't so and one reason is because this says he's going to deliver us from the wrath not just god's wrath any wrath we'll not spend one day in the tribulation we won't suffer anything during that time we're going to be gone now this same wrath is mentioned and look at some of these verses here one of them we just said first thessalonians 1 10 and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He's going to come out of heaven and rescue us from the wrath to come. And that wrath is that day of the Lord that we've been studying so much. Revelation 3.10. Look at this one. Go to your Bible. Go to your Bible and circle this. Or make a list. These are so important to keep it straight. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Now, this is when the, the church is still on planet Earth. And we're getting instructions here. And he's telling the church, that would be those believers in the church age, Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing... 
that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. Now, that's pretty clear. We're not going to be earth dwellers because we're going to be in heaven by that time. And he's talking about church age believers that he's going to keep them from the hour of testing. You see, some people say, well, that wrath is just, it's talking about wrath that occurs and, you know, you always have wars and you have these things going on all the time. They're trying to not make it specific, but the Bible keeps making it specific. This wrath is the testing, the hour which is about to come upon what? The whole world. And that's what's going to happen when Antichrist makes that treaty with Israel and Jesus Christ starts breaking those seals. That judgment is going to hit the entire earth. Y'all know where Nahum is? Let's find Nahum. We've only got, what uh, is that, uh, nine minutes left. Can you find Nahum in nine <laughs> Look at Nahum. N-A-H-U-M. Or you can just look up here. I've got it up here. But if y'all want to do a sword drill, how many of you know what a sword drill is? <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with swords. It has to do with finding verses, doesn't it? Nahum 1-2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. We are His children. We are His body. We are in Christ. We're not His adversaries. We're not His enemies. This is reserved for unbelieving world that's going to occur at the tribulation. Then we have Second Peter two nine. Are y'all still trying to find Nahum? Or are we are we moving on? Huh? <laughs> Did I skip one? Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, well, for the sake of time, we won't have to go there. Just look up here, and we'll press on. But. Romans 5, 9. Much more, having then now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Now, are we going to be saved from the wrath of God with regards to eternal judgment in hell? Yes. But that's not the only wrath that the Bible mentions that we're going to be saved or delivered from. We're also going to be delivered from the wrath to come of the tribulation. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Well, I love this one. Look at this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, that would be those who have imputed righteousness, from temptation. The word really there means testing. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The day of judgment. The day of judgment is going to start hitting when the day of the Lord begins after the Antichrist is revealed and makes the treaty. Are you all ready to press on? Okay. Here's a quote, again, from this Zane Hodges article. God did not appoint the Thessalonian believers or any other believers to experience any of the 
eschatological calamities of the tribulation. He did not appoint them. Remember, he did not designate. He did not destine them. But to what has God appointed believers? The answer is salvation. The deliverance or rescue to which 1 Thessalonians 1.10 also refers. And through whom does deliverance come? It comes through the one who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. This is verse 10. Or as 1 Thessalonians 1.10 declares, it comes through God's Son from heaven. That's the deliverance. That's why we're delivered. The next phrase is, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. I'll probably have to end on this point. The mind naturally defaults to the fact that we are saved from eternal condemnation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not true? When you hear that, that's where your mind goes. That's what you think. However, we can never lose sight of the context of this Scripture. Clearly, the salvation or deliverance mentioned here refers to deliverance from the misery, suffering, and death of the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. Throughout this whole thing, all in this chapter 5 here, it's not talking about eternal deliverance with regards to hell. It's talking about a salvation, all right, but it's deliverance from the wrath to come, which is the tribulation. I composed this sentence about three hours ago, maybe four hours ago. And I thought, I hope this, I hope this uh, really sets well in your soul. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, because we are in Christ permanently identified with Him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because we are His body, because we are sealed and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, because God has not destined us for wrath, we will not go through one day of the tribulation, the seventh week of Daniel, the day of the Lord, or any other name you want to call it. That's why we're not going to be going through it. I can't imagine that God would take His own body his bride, and drag it through the horrors that was designed for stiff-necked, unrebellious, I mean, rebellious people or who are his enemies. Just the nature of it is repulsive to me. That's not the Jesus Christ that I know. And we have these promises from Paul. We will not go through these. He will deliver us from those. That is our helmet of salvation and it's not as salvation from hell it's salvation from what is coming you see here's the thing so many people are so ignorant when it comes to god's word they don't even know that jesus christ is coming for his church he's not he, they're not they don't know about the rapture furthermore they don't know that there is a time that the bible prophesies that is coming that is so horrible we can't even conceive it so when you for us, it's very meaningful because this is a promise at the end of this. I wish I 
just could go on and give you the end of it. But by the time you get to verse 11, he's saying exactly the same phrase that he said at 1 Thessalonians 4.18 that I've said so many times at funerals. And that is comfort one another with these words. That's the end of the promise and giving us the detailed information about Jesus Christ returning and coming for us to deliver us from the wrath to come. And at the end of that section in 1 Thessalonians 5, you have him saying the exact same phrase. And the context has nothing to do with eternal salvation from hell. It has everything to do with delivering us and promising us that we won't go through any of that horrible time that is not designed for us, nor are we destined for it. I have to... I have to draw a line in the sand here. If You know, I, I just don't like time. I'm sorry about that. I don't like to be limited by time. And I, un, I understand they say that the, uh, how does it go, that the, um, the amount of the intake that the brain can take in is directly uh, related to the bottom, <laughs> something like that about how long you can sit. I wish I remembered exactly. And that has to do with time also. But see, I, sometimes I feel frustrated because I know what's coming up. And if I could string it all together and put it in one lesson, then you could say, ah, I'll get the whole thing. So I won't see you all again on this subject for many days. And by the time we get back, all the things that are going to happen between now and then, you've got to get your mind cranked up again to where we are now. That's why I wish we could just continue on, but we have to get it in just bites of about an hour at a time because once you get past that, you can't process it all anyway. Most people can't. And the fact that you can sit there and concentrate and absorb it for an entire hour is miraculous as far as what most people think. Most people go to church and they get all the razzmatazz and after 20 minutes, they're looking at, the, at their watch and cutting their eyes at the door. That's all they can handle. But that's one of the great things, that one of the benefits that God has given us. The more we concentrate on His Word, the more He gives us the ability to concentrate and to focus. That's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. If you're really, if you're really positive... And I know all of you would say, yeah, well, let's just go on for another hour. And some of you would say, uh, horrors of horrors. But what I, And I know that you could maybe sit here and do it, but I don't know what you could remember. We can just absorb so much at a time. And that's what the Bible says. A little here, a little there. Line upon line, Scripture upon Scripture. So the reason I'm telling you this, because I wish I could go on and show you so you could put it all together. We'll do a little review next time and see if we can uh, put it together because it is fabulous. Oh, I'm, 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 Lord willing, the creeks don't rise. I'll be here next Tuesday. Um, but I'm just thinking, in my own mind, even this is not just for y'all. Between now and the time that I meet with y'all again, uh, we're going to have a Sunday service. It's going to be a communion service. And then uh, Monday, I'm going to teach in Austin. And uh, 
then I'll be back and ready to go Tuesday. So my mind's going to be a lot of places between now and then, and I have to get cranked back up. So when we, when we have a little review to start with, don't think that, oh, it's just to fill in the time. We've got to bring ourselves back up to speed. And it, I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just saying that's the nature of the beast because we have so many things. Our lives are so full. And yet to concentrate on this, we have to get back to what the overall view of what Paul is saying. And it is, I had no idea until I started studying First Thessalonians, what all was there, but especially in chapter 5. I knew chapter 4 would blow your doors off. I mean, that's the rapture. It's talking about the rapture. But chapter 5 is, is giving more security for us. Actually, what it's doing is giving us a helmet to put on, the hope of being delivered. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. What will we do without... Your grace and your word. We're so thankful that you have sorted these things out for us. And that you have given us this armor so that we can put on and resist all the, de the distractions and details. And that we can focus upon your mighty grace. And we can boldly tell others that we're, there's a time coming that's going to be horrible, but we're not going to be part of it. And that they might have that hope also. We thank you for this and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.